So, let's, uh, let's get started. Today we're looking at um, Acts chapter 3. So this is the first in our uh, short series on Acts. And um, we're looking at how we can speak from God's power today. So, um, Luke, are you filling up to reading? No, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> okay, let's read from Acts chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 16. All right, um, so Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, uh, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and uh, and strengthened. He stood up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then, walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, uh, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witness of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Thanks, Luke. So let's pray. Lord, help us to observe the power of the Holy Spirit when he moves and and use that opportunity to engage with those around us who need to hear about your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So years ago, when I was uh, living in Japan, my best friend Boydie visited me. Um, We had a fascinating conversation about faith during that time in my one-room apartment. So there wasn't much opportunity to get away from each other. <laughs> um, Boydie was and, and still is a dogmatic atheist. In that conversation, I remember asking him what it would take for him to believe in God. His response was along the lines of something like God writing across the sky in flaming letters a personalised message that he was indeed real. This is actually quite a common request from dogmatic atheists, so it's not a one-off. And it's interesting to think about what this requirement says. For a start, they want God to address them personally. Mere rational evidence of God's existence is not sufficient. 
Second, they want something that is unarguably the result of an intelligence and not mere natural forces, namely writing. And third, they want something that can't be man-made, namely flaming letters in the sky. It's interesting to compare this powerful, this potential message from God to the real message that the lame beggar on the temple steps received. His legs, which had been useless since birth, abruptly and inexplicably grew strong at the word of these followers of Jesus. You can't get much more personal than that, can you? You can't get a greater intelligence than the one that surpasses all human medical knowledge. And you can't get much more humanly impossible than the instant healing of never working limbs. You can see why the once lame beggar was overwhelmed with gratitude to God. And why Peter could use this as an opportunity to share the gospel. And Peter did use this example of God's power to share the gospel. He made sure that the people understood that it was God who was at work here. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, Peter said. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Peter recognized how this demonstration of power attracted people's attention. He saw that all the people saw the beggar walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the lame beggar they'd seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. And they all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, which, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. And then, with this exercise of God's power as the context, Peter took the opportunity to share the full gospel, the whole good news, which ironically starts with the bad. By the way, Peter's sermon here is a pattern for us, not a formula. The difference between a pattern and a formula is simple. A pattern needs to be applied afresh to every situation. A formula is simply followed over and over again. Do you get the difference? So let's unpack this pattern. This is a pretty pattern that I put here so you can visualise what a pattern is. Nature is full of patterns. First, Peter spoke of the people's sin and he linked it to God's exercise of power right in that context. He said, You rejected this holy righteous one, Jesus, and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed, and you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Now notice how Peter draws their attention back to God's work of power after he's pointed to their sin. If we've sinned against God, 
but God is a distant person or a distant thing, is somehow unrelated to this world, as in the belief system known as deism, then sin isn't going to be punished by God. God doesn't care. He's not engaged. But if God is powerful and is at work in the world, then he is to be feared by sinners because he's going to do something about injustice, about sin. Second, Paul called the people to repentance from their sins. He said, friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance, but God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. So you can see again how God's work in the world relates to our repentance. If we repent, then we experience God's presence in the world, in our lives, as refreshing instead of fearsome. Third, Peter shared God's promise of of redemption for repentant sinners. He said, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So, conviction of sin and a reminder of God's power, a call to repentance and the refreshment that comes with that, and the promise of redemption. That's the pattern. Now, even without my observation that this is a pattern, not a formula, it should be obvious that we can't simply parrot Peter's words. Not only do we not have any healed beggars clinging to us, most of the time, but none of Peter's words would make sense to anyone we spoke to. Imagine going up to someone on the beach and uh, suddenly accusing them of putting Jesus to death and demanding the release of a murderer. They would rightly think we were loonies. Or uh, think about asking them to consider the Old Testament prophecies and how they apply to them. They don't. They're not the sons of Abraham. And finally, our promise of redemption is not going to look like Peter's. God's promise to Abraham, which Peter bases his promise on, is so far distant from the local experience of secular Australians that it's meaningless to them. 
We must find some other way to reach our fellow Australians. Nevertheless, the broad patterns of Peter's speech do retain their power even today, even here in Burley, which is where we are right now and where that picture is. There's a sense in which modern Australians have put Jesus to death by their own sins. Somehow, we need to relate God's power to their rebellion against him. And there's a sense in which Australians need to repent. We must explain the genuine benefits of that. And finally, there's also a sense in which modern Australians are beneficiaries of God's promise to Abraham. We are, after all, amongst the families of the earth to be blessed. Right? How can we explain that reality? That is our task as God's representatives, to keenly observe his power at work and to use the opportunity to communicate powerfully and effectively the reality of sin, the need for repentance and the blessings of belonging to God's family. What's an example of God's power in our world, in our experience? You're undoubtedly wondering how you would do this. After all, it, well, for me at least, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but when I think about the last time I healed a lame beggar, hmm, yeah, no, I don't think I have. So... Fortunately for us, God's power isn't just in such obvious miracles. People see God's power in his creation too, as Paul says in Romans. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky and the ocean and the beach. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So... They have no excuse for not knowing God. Here on the Gold Coast, that's doubly true. People see God's power in how we love one another as well. Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. He was speaking to his disciples. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So the reality of Jesus becomes evident in our love for one another. And people see God's power in our answers to their questions about their lives, about our lives and our beliefs. Paul tells the Colossians, live wisely among those who are not believers And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. None of these things are flashy. None of these things are what we normally think of when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. None of these things are a lame beggar leaping about suddenly healed. And yet all of these things are taken straight from the New Testament church. 
This is how the New Testament church spoke to the surrounding culture. This is the power of God that the New Testament church demonstrated. Not just beggars being healed. And we have this power today. We need to be on the lookout for God's power at work in our lives. Even if we look a bit silly, that's okay. In little ways, look out for God's power at work in little ways as much as in big ways. God heals bodies, yes, but he also heals minds and emotions and behaviours. And that healing, as the kids understood from the Sunday school lesson this morning, is vastly more important because unlike physical healing, we carry it into heaven with us. So when you're looking for an opportunity to speak from God's power, remember that those opportunities might be smaller ones than you think. But even small, they're still genuine and powerful. I remember my response to Boydie's challenge to God. I told him that God had sent him a much more personal miracle. Me. Now, I know that sounds, I know that sounds arrogant. <laughs> yep, I'm God's gift to God's gift to Boydie. It does sound arrogant, but but Boydie has seen my struggles. He he knew there was nothing special about me. I'm just an ordinary Charters Towers country boy. But he also knew how God had given me strength and courage and purpose. He'd seen that. Now I'm still waiting for Boydie to recognise God's work in me, but I continue to pray for that. And it's not arrogant for us as Christians to think that we are God's gift to the people around us because guess what? We are. That's exactly what we are. We are God's gift to Australia. The second thing to be ready for is the way you can take advantage of these opportunities. Just as the opportunities may be small, so might your audience. You don't need hundreds of people gathered around in one of the most spectacular buildings in history, the temple, by the way, Herod's temple. That's what Peter had, sure, but I guarantee you that he had times when it was just him and one other person, like these guys. Do you think he ignored that opportunity? I seriously doubt it. So just as Peter pointed out, sin called for repentance and pointed to the hope we have, we too need to do that. That's an opportunity to get boiling water, by the way. (laughs) So I want to ask you three questions. What are some of the common sins that contemporary Australians struggle with, which they're open to accepting that they struggle with? Okay? So sins that you can lay on their hearts and that they can feel for themselves, not something that they're going to feel judged about, but something that they're judging themselves on. Okay? You can't, it's not effective to say you're a sinner when they disagree with you. That's just judgmental. But if, if, if you can speak into the, the struggles that they have, 
that makes a difference. So what is something that Australians feel deeply that they struggle with, something that they do wrong, that they regret, that they don't want to do, that they know is wrong? What would repentance look like in that context? How would they repent from that and what would it look like? What sort of benefits would it bring? And finally, what is the promise of God's redemption that speaks to the heart of Australians? So I want you to just two or three people just have a a quick chat together. We've got um, three and a half minutes here. If you can have a quick chat and see if you can answer some of these questions about the Australian and, and think about the Australians that you know, not theoretical Australians, but real Australians that you know. Okay? Okay, so anyone, did anyone have some thoughts that they wanted to share on those questions? Anyone have any thoughts they wanted to share? Yes. Yep, Tim? We had dishonesty as part of the conversation. What repentance would look like would be, I guess a lot of people would say that they'd try not to do it again. And Isabel's point was, people of the world, I don't think... They very are very genuine in that a lot of the time, though, and they tend mm. to go and make the same mistakes over and over. Yep. And the resolution of God is dishonesty. And the resolution of God is that we um, become people who are people of honesty rather than yep. making those repeated mistakes. Yep. Hmm. So I suppose that could go from being dishonest on their taxes right through every aspect of their life, couldn't it? We we look at it as in the secular world the things that would be a sin to them would yep. be murder yep. right? and yep. corruption. Yep. Right? And theft. Yeah. So it's hard to it's hard to yeah, it's hard to to convict somebody of that though, isn't it? It's hard for them to be convicted of it if they haven't done it, which most people would not admit to. <laughs> Well, we were just saying that so much is so acceptable. Yep. It's very hard yeah. to find things that people are struggling with because yeah. everything is on the table and open yep. Yep. to have yeah. or not have. Yep. Um, but then we kind of let it down and we're talking about seeing our identity as, or well, not necessarily as a sin for people, but saying like, Maybe they see themselves by their work accomplishments. Yeah. But then the negative and positives of that is that when work's not going well, they don't feel very good about themselves. Where the um, yeah, the identity. Yeah. Yeah. So they're violating their identity by failing to do something yeah, properly or something if like they that. They had the identity in God. They would always be whole and complete. Yeah. So, so the, the concepts are actually quite flexible. Um, any other thoughts? People's concept of sin is generally related to how they, how they uh, were on the scale of sin in their mind compared to the 
other people in society. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. they justify, yeah. you know, they justify that, oh, I'm not too bad, I'm much better than, mm. than <laughs> such and person. such. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, like they don't tend to think about what God's standard is. Yeah. Actually, I think we actually have society on our side in this because society is, if you read the papers or the, the watch the TV, you'll see that society is desperately trying to make all of us uh, sort of middle class, you know, um, white, white people, most of us. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we're guilty. And what are we guilty of? We're guilty of discrimination, even if, you know, unconscious discrimination but we don't have to go that far the thing is that society is sensitizing people to that to that sin and it is prejudice is actually a sin it's not loving somebody as a human being it's treating them as a thing as something that that doesn't need to be understood doesn't need to be related to something that fits in a box which human beings do not and so it is a sin um, from a Christian perspective. And, and so I think that prejudice or that, that discrimination um, is a very potent sin for us to use today. And repentance from that, of course, is to show love, to care about people. Uh, one of the problems with some of the, like, um, like the critical theories is that you can't repent like if you're a, if you're a white male a middle class white male you're just going to sin for the rest of your life but christianity tells us that we can repent and so we can offer that hope you can repent and you can look forward to eternity without this prejudice without this judgmentalism without this this conflict between people of different backgrounds and 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 different um different sort of perspectives and positions in society christianity promises that we will all be one people no matter how many tongues and tribes we come from we will all be one people and that's a very powerful message for today's society that's just my thought on but there's there's so many different ways so it, you need to treat the people that you're around as people. Look at what they find offensive and what they think is a sin. Figure out how that fits into Christianity and then exploit that. Does that make sense? I think. <laughs> well, it's. It's it's yeah, influent. Yeah. It's interesting that. Just use it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what an exploit is. <laughs> so, <clears throat> let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, help us to look for your power at work, even in small ways, and to take these opportunities to share the full good news of your salvation with our neighbours. In Jesus' name and Spirit, Amen.